Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm delighted to be talking today with Mark Drakeford, First Minister of Wales. Very warm welcome to you, Mark. As everyone listening to this will know, I'm sure, Mark has been First Minister and Leader of Welsh Labour since 2018 and was first elected a member of the Senate, Welsh Parliament, for Cardiff West in 2011. Mark, it's not your first time speaking to the IFG, of course, but the first time since coronavirus. And that has brought us a whole host of new questions about uh, the Welsh Government, about the UK Government and about devolution overall. Let's start if we may, by turning back to the first weeks of coronavirus, which now do seem a very long time ago, almost exactly three months since the start of lockdown, and that wasn't the start of it all. Coordination with the UK government and the other devolved nations seemed very close at that point, it was much remarked upon. Uh, was, that, was that your impression, and how did that come about, if so? Uh, yes, I think it is true that in those early days, there was uh, a great deal of close contact. I've been uh, just reminding myself of the schedule of meetings that we had at the first part uh, into the middle of March. And I can see meetings with the Prime Minister uh, at one point almost on a daily uh, basis. So as we went, as the crisis point uh, came, there was certainly uh, very close and regular uh, meetings between the devolved administrations and the UK government. Uh, how did it come about? It comes about in the way that things tend to be done in the UK, it seems to me, you know, in a sort of uh, ad hoc, uh, make it happen when it happens sort of way. Um, that's not to say that at the time it, it wasn't successful uh, and the ability to do things rapidly and differently in a crisis is probably a, a strength. Uh, but it is interesting looking back that none of it relied upon the established machinery of government and the way that on paper you might have expected things to happen. That's really interesting and I, I want to come on to that. At what point did you decide um, that it was right for Wales for you to really adopt a markedly different approach in some respects? Uh, I just want to take issue very slightly with the question because it, it has a, a bit of an implication in it uh, that there is a template that is set by one party and other people depart from it. No, right, uh, fair point. Uh, and, uh, you know, th that's not the way we would see it from a devolved perspective. The way things happen in England is, isn't a, a pattern which we choose to follow or choose to depart from. Uh, from the beginning, um, I have thought that doing things on a four nation basis was the right way to respond to the crisis. But the devolution uh, allowed different parts of the United Kingdom to calibrate the uh, essential uh, message in a way that is right for local purposes. So just to give you, uh, you know, one or two early examples, uh, I think we decided a bit earlier than uh, other people that in order to create the headroom we would need in our health service, we needed to step back from some of the routine things uh, that the health service was having to deal with. So we began to postpone some of the more day-in, day-out things that the health service does at an earlier point uh, because the Welsh Health Service, you know, runs very hot, as they say, most of the time. And knowing what was coming down the pipe at us, we knew that we needed to create some room, both physical 
capacity in terms of beds and so on. But in a way more important, we needed to offer our staff uh, an opportunity to do some rapid uh, retraining and refamiliarization with some of the things that they were going to need to be able to do uh, when they were all having to deal with the onslaught of coronavirus cases. Uh, and we think that stood us in good stead. We did it a bit ahead because the circumstances in Wales told us that we needed to create the headroom in that way here. And is part of that circumstance that, as you said, that the, the Welsh Health Service being prone to run hot, uh, another way of putting that might be to say it didn't have uh, the capacity or the room to create capacity that uh, the NHS um, England did? Well, that would be arguable, uh, I suppose. Um, from our point of view, we just felt that seeing what we could see coming our way, it was important to give our health service time to prepare. Um, and, you know, I think if you were looking for some of the bigger contrasts over the whole of a period, I think you, you could argue this, uh, that the approach we have tried to take in Wales is to uh, plan first and announce second, where uh, in some other places, the approach seems to have been announce first and then plan. You're being very diplomatic there, but it is something the IFG has written quite a lot about, uh, about the UK government's um, approach. One thing that has provoked quite a bit of curiosity is whether the, uh, Wales has uh, access to uh, extra scientific advice, if you like, on top of um, uh, that available to the UK government that has shaped some of your decisions. We do. We have our own technical advisory uh, group. We've always had our own chief uh, scientist in our health uh, department. We have a chief scientist for the government as a whole, uh, and we have indeed been able to draw on that. It's very important for me uh, that we are also able to draw on all the work that is done through SAGE, the UK level advice, that that is advice that is commonly available to all the constituent parts of uh, the United Kingdom but that we are then able to mobilise the sort of advice that is just a bit closer to the ground, um, you know, more familiar with uh, Welsh, the, the nature of Welsh demography, the sort of uh, challenges we would face. And I think we've had a particular success in that, for example, in the way we have tried to respond to the needs of uh, black and minority ethnic staff in our health and social care sector, because once it became apparent that there was a particular impact for those communities, what we were able to do was to mobilise a group of black clinicians uh, working in the NHS in Wales to put together, for example, a self-assessment tool that people from those communities are able to use at the front line to be able to... Um, identify the level of risk that they face in particular workplaces and then to work with local managements to mitigate those risks. And the fact that it has come from frontline black staff providing that advice for other staff in the same position, I think has given it an authority uh, and a willingness to be used that it wouldn't have had had we simply taken something off the peg produced by other people in mm. other circumstances.
You produced on Friday, and there's been a lot of attention uh, when you produce these Friday updates of the Welsh lockdown rules. Uh, you produced some greater relaxation of the lockdown rules than many people were expecting. So from what you're saying, you've done all the planning for this, and particularly on the effect of, of travel, people being able to travel into Wales and um, more widely around Wales. Um, but w what was the reason for coming out with that um, surprise? Well, it's, um, it, is a, it is a bigger package of measures than we probably would have anticipated only a month earlier. Uh, and that is because we have seen a faster fall in the prevalence of the disease in Wales that we were probably anticipating a few weeks uh, before. So because we do it on the three-week cycle, uh, one of the things we are always looking at are all the indicators we can use of how much coronavirus there is in Wales. Uh, and by the time we went into the final week, the advice from our chief medical officer and scientist was that we had a bit more headroom uh, than we might have been anticipating, so we could afford to do a bit more. Uh, and our chief medical officer has always put a particular emphasis on the need to use the time of year that we are in. Uh, that the virus does not like the sunlight, it doesn't like the uh, you know the the open air, and that we should take advantage of that to allow people to do things at this point in the calendar, because if we were to find ourselves in the you know late autumn into the winter in a second wave, we may not be able to offer people all the freedoms that they have at the moment. So there is a bit about using the opportunity while you have it. And combination of those factors produce the package. But very important to say that the package is a staged package. The other thing we are very keen to stick with as much as we can is the WHO and indeed the SAGE advice that you should do things in a step-by-step -step way because that gives you a fighting chance of being able to you know, associate cause and effect. Because some of the things we are all doing may have unintended consequences. If we were to see a flare-up because of something, we would need to be able to track it back to the action we had taken uh, in a way that could allow you to turn off what you had done. If you do too many things all at once, then that becomes a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, I'd be interested, incidentally, to see the uh, scientific uh, arguments on the on the virus not liking sunlight. Um, Seems to me that's one of the uh, things that we we'd like to know about it. But yeah, um, so we publish. Perhaps our... I'm lagging the, the the Welsh scientific advice on that. Yeah, of course. So we publish um, our yeah, advice on. every week. Um, yeah. Unlike the some of the uh, more national advice, so. We have now for a number of weeks published a weekly update, a summary of the technical advisory right. group advice that comes to the Welsh Government. It is public facing, so you know yeah. it is written in a way that's meant to be accessible for an interested lay person. But we do put that into the public domain every week. Thank you. We'll, we'll look out for that. Did you feel under pressure? Though? I mean, there's been a lot of clamour from the Welsh tourist industry, particularly in the past month, saying, look, we're going to miss the summer. Um, and uh, uh, and this is an enormous part, uh, perhaps ten percent of the uh, of Welsh employment uh, coming coming from this, um, coming from tourism. And you face perhaps the looming prospect that people in England would be able to go to Spain and and Italy, but not go to Wales. Uh, so you feel the pressure, but for me, the pressure is not about lobby groups, uh, and it's not about you know people pointing to what is happening somewhere else. Uh, the pressure I felt around that is because of the importance of that sector to so many communities in Wales. Uh, and the fact that 
you know, if a tourism season is gone, you can't just reinvent it in November. Uh, so you either allow it to happen when it can happen or you've lost it completely. And the typical pattern in the tourism sector is that people invest in the winter, knowing that they will recoup it uh, and make the money they make in, in the following summer. So the position our tourism industry found itself in was that it had spent the money leading up to March and was just about to go into the time of year when they would begin to be able to recoup that when uh, the the tap was turned off. So uh, you feel that pressure because you know people have livelihoods as well as lives, as we say. Uh, and um, from when, you know the, the number of ways in which we try and explain this. Sometimes I use the analogy of you know headroom. You only got so much headroom. Sometimes I I say when I'm doing more public facing stuff that the efforts that everybody has made in Wales has put some money in the bank. Uh, and you, you know, you draw the money out. Uh, but you've got to be very careful. If you draw too much out, you go overdrawn and you're back in a problem again. So we look to see how much money we have in the bank and then we look to see what we can spend it on. What about uh, real money, if you, if you like, and the money coming to Wales under the Barnet formula? Um, you, you might well argue, uh, that this, this, um, has, um, uh, is another, this, this whole uh, experience in the past few months is another. Uh, reason for looking again at the Barnet, Barnet formula. Where, where are your arguments on that? Well, the fundamental arguments of the Barnet formula are, are, are the same as they've always been, that it is, you know, decades out of date uh, and needs to be reformed so that uh, funding follows need so that broadly people in different parts of the United Kingdom are able to enjoy a similar level of service. So all of that um, remains true. Uh, look, look I, I want to say something, you know, that I try and say every time that we, we recognize very much the huge efforts that the UK government have made in terms of finding money for the furlough scheme, the self-employed, uh, scheme. Those things have been very important, uh, in Wales and they were early, you know, they were decisions made early enough to make a difference. So I want to be positive about that. We've used our own money. That's the, the term to use. We have collected money from other parts of the Welsh government to create our own 500 million economic resilience fund. And lots of that has been about trying to fill some of the gaps that inevitably appear when you've got relatively blunt instruments being produced at enormous speed. And when they hit the reality of people's lives, they don't always fit. So our own money we have tried to use to fill the gaps. So um, the, the Barney formula issue, I think it, it is, it probably is a reinforcement of it from what we've gone through, but it's probably not the biggest thing that we've had to worry about. Let's turn to just a, a couple of economic questions. What are you expecting to happen in Wales when the furlough scheme ends? If it, if it does end, but at the moment it does have an end to it. Well, look, our, our big uh, uh, discussion with the UK government is about ending the furlough scheme in a way that is not uh, blunt, that is calibrated, that does take account of the needs of particular sectors. I, you know, I completely do understand that the Chancellor can't go on paying for things that the economy is able to pay for itself. So where people are going back to work and are able to go back to work, you can't expect a furlough scheme uh, to be a permanent feature of those parts of the economy. But those parts of the economy which cannot reopen 
um, let, let's take major events, maybe. So although we hope to you know, reopen some parts of our tourism economy, uh, parts of that economy uh, revolve around major events. And a whole series of major events in Wales uh, have had to be uh, postponed. They won't happen at all this year in the way they would, would normally. And people who make their livelihoods uh, out of that won't find a different Royal Welsh show or a different national Eisteddfod uh, coming up later in the year to make up for the money they've lost. So where there are sectors that simply can't get back on their feet uh, by their own efforts this year, we need the furlough scheme to be, you know, carefully calibrated so that those people don't find themselves um, through absolutely no fault of their own and with no remedy that they themselves can apply uh, on the receiving end of all that uh, bad news. So partly it's about making sure the furlough scheme ends in the right way, in a calibrated way. Uh, and then we've been talking inside the Welsh Government very much about uh, our support to our Economic Resilience Fund has been focused on businesses, trying to make sure that businesses that had a successful future in front of them in 2019 can have a successful future in 2021 to look forward to. But refocusing some of that on people uh, and finding ways in which people who will find themselves out of jobs because there's going to be unemployment on a scale we haven't seen for a long time. How do we support people through what I still think will be a V-shaped recovery for some sectors, will be a U-shaped recovery for others, and then the people we worry about the most, those people who, without government intervention, are facing an L-shape impact, you know, they will lose their jobs, they will fall through the floor of their economic prospects. And unless governments can intervene to create a path out for them, will find themselves just left on the floor. What lessons do you draw from the experience of, of Wales, particularly South Wales in the 1980s, about, um, about the ways government can actually help rebuild communi communities? Um, well, uh, you know, uh, the lessons we draw will be focused around people and places. Uh, the scarring effect of unemployment early in life. Uh, the way that if your economic prospects are removed for you at the start of your career, when you're looking for those first opportunities, how that can last through a whole working lifetime. You never, you know, you, you may never catch up from where you would be. So we will be focused very much on young people. And our experience of the 1980s certainly taught us that. Uh, and we've had places in Wales that have been on a 30-year journey of economic recovery. Uh, so unless we can attend to those places more carefully and immediately, uh, we will lose and set back very painful uh, gains and difficult journeys. And we don't want to find those people going through it, those places going through it all again, if there are things we can do to, to assist. You just take one a tiny sliver of... Um... Um, of an eco economic debate, but uh, it's one that's had a, a bit of political sting to it. And there's been some anger among um, Senate members, uh, uh, some, of, some of them, about a possible cap on the numbers of students that Welsh universities can take from England. On the other hand, you have the other side of the argument saying, look, uh, um, Wales is, is getting its, its, its money to support it uh, under uh, devolution, but that doesn't mean it can turn around and do things that undermine 
um, the university sector in England, which is having all kinds of problems itself in these circumstances? Well, my concern in a way would be less with the decision and more with the way the decision was made. Uh, because this is not a good, you know, this is not a good example of the way the decision should happen when a decision that one component part of the United Kingdom makes has a direct impact uh, on others. So what should have happened here is that we should never have been reading this decision, you know, in a press release. There should have been proper discussion between education ministers. We should have seen if we could have crafted uh, an outcome that would have worked for us uh, all and worked better for us all. Um, and if we'd done it that way, maybe the decision itself would have been different. Uh, but our, you know, my concern, uh, I have concerns at the decision and the impact on our sector. Of course I do. Uh, but I'm more concerned at the way it was done. Uh, and the way that, you know, a unilateral decision over here let, leads to what might have been avoidable difficulties over uh, somewhere else. That's not a good way to run the United Kingdom. The word that uh, is coming up the agenda at the moment of Brexit, and um, well, obviously we've got Brexit, but the, the future relationship with the EU, I was wondering whether you felt you've been able to influence those negotiations and what you would like out of them that's still in play at this point. Uh, well, I'm afraid... Uh, for lots of reasons, we feel our ability to have any impact has diminished even further, and you know our ability to have an impact was uh, wasn't that great in the first place. Uh, I had written to the Prime Minister in the very early days uh, of coronavirus, just as we could see it gathering, uh, to say to him, surely, given what everybody now faces, ourselves and our colleagues in Europe, now is the time to agree that. Uh, you know, a, a simple extension to the transition period to make up for the time we're about to lose would, would be sensible and everybody would understand it. Uh, well, uh, not everybody does understand it because the reply I got didn't understand that at all. Uh, I then wrote jointly with uh, Nicola Sturgeon uh, much more recently, once again to urge the UK government to avoid avoidable harm. You know, these are two very different experiences. Coronavirus uh, is a harm that uh, nobody created, uh, that came our way and we've done our best to uh, to cope with it. The harm that will come by a bungled exit from the European Union is avoidable uh, and is avoidable by decisions that UK ministers must take. Uh, so this is not to do at all with leaving the European Union. That's over where... Uh, we're leaving. It's about the terms on which we leave and the way in which we leave. And we've all, we've always had a proper agenda, which we've tried to persuade the UK government of, that you can leave in a way that mitigates the impact on the Welsh economy. You can leave in a way that will exaggerate the harm. Uh, and very sadly, at a point when our economy will be under enormous strain because of coronavirus, if we're not careful, we're going to layer on top of that uh, a whole set of avoidable harms. I've got um, in, in mind uh, next year's Welsh Parliament um, elections, but um, I was wondering whether you thought there was a genuine rise in support for Welsh independence and where that might go. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I, I, I don't detect that. You can manipulate some opinion polls to make it look as though they were, uh, but it is a manipulation of the data. You know, you, you get to the figure by eliminating all sorts of people who uh, didn't reply and so on. And you come up with 
an answer that makes it look as though independence is uh, gathering some momentum. Uh, I think actually that what the crisis uh, could do, done properly, is to just confirm with people the advantages that we have through a devolved United Kingdom. Our ability still to draw on the strength we get by being part of a wider union. And I am very glad, sitting where I am, that we have, that Wales has been part of that wider polity, uh, during this crisis. But the devolution gives you the freedom to make decisions that are right for the component parts. So I come out of it with a, you know, a strengthened belief that done properly, and that's a much bigger question, uh, that uh, coronavirus tells us that being part of something together, but being able to make our own decisions gives you the best of both worlds. Okay, thanks. Well, we've had a, um, quite a lot of extremely good questions come in. Perhaps I can fire a few of them at you. Okay, first one's from Ian McLean, who's the Senior Research Fellow in Politics uh, at Nuffield College, Oxford. And he says, what was the science advice behind the do not travel more than five miles rule? Uh, were you uncomfortable with it being different from the uh, English rules? And what about people at the border? Now, this has been a bit supplanted by your announcements of uh, loosening um, from July 6th onwards uh, uh, last Friday. But I, I, the point about where, where did that come from? Uh, well, the, the, the science behind it is uh, that... Uh, the more you allow people to travel, the more the virus can travel with them. Uh, and we've had a, uh, we've had a geographically differentiated experience of coronavirus in Wales, uh, where the rates of infection are much higher in southeast Wales, for example, than southwest Wales. So what you don't want to have is a situation in which people who live in the parts where the virus is in relatively free circulation, uh, are able to travel where they like, taking the virus with them and uh, infecting places where the virus has been more effectively suppressed or where it never reached those communities. So the stay local message for us has been very much about, uh, you know, part of the general effort to prevent the spread of coronavirus in Wales. It's been a very important part of our armoury. As there is less and less coronavirus in circulation at all, so the need to remain local begins to diminish. Uh, and that's why we hope that in two weeks' time, provided the trajectory of the disease continues as it has been, we'll be able to lift uh, that um, restriction. Does it worry me that it has been done differently elsewhere? Uh, well, I'm very glad indeed that we have not had scenes on beaches in Wales of the sort uh, that we have seen in England. Uh, so, uh, you know... Yeah. I don't worry that we have not done the right thing because I feel very confident that we have. And I think we have seen some distressing scenes of what happens if we don't do it the right way. Uh, and does it matter at the border? Well, um, I, I know that some people have become more sensitized to the Welsh border as a result of coronavirus than they may have been previously. But people who live at the border are very used to this all the time because there have always been differences. You know, if you live in Wales, you're entitled to free prescriptions. If you live in England and your doctor is in Wales, you're not. Well, um, on, on the other hand, it's quite a thing suddenly to create an, in, an internal border that people can't cross in, in, in a country. Um, but let me move on to 
another one, Professor Nicola McEwen um, from the School of Social and Political Science at Edinburgh University. And she says, do you think the way in which the devolved governments were able to join Whitehall ministerial implementation groups to help coordinate an approach to COVID-19 offers a way of doing relations um, beyond the crisis? Uh, well, if that could be systematized, then I think it would. Uh, and the fact that that was able to happen was very helpful uh, and I think has benefited us all. Um, but to repeat some stuff probably and I've discussed with you before, you know, what, what I think you need are arrangements that are regular and reliable. Um, that don't have to be reinvented and disinvented uh, as we go along. So, you know, I think they have been very helpful. They can offer a template for the future, but the template in my mind that they should offer is that we need a far more dependable set of intergovernmental uh, arrangements that we can mobilize and adapt in a crisis, but don't appear in a crisis and evaporate uh, the minute the crisis is over. Okay, just a couple more, if, if that's okay. One from Dr. Craig Johnson, who's a research associate at the Wales Centre for Public Policy at Cardiff University. And he, he wants to know what you uh, think might happen if Wales adopts more cautious devolved public health measures than England, but ones that are reliant on UK government economic support. Well, look, look, look that's a very good question uh, indeed. And it, it does demonstrate the you know, some of the leverage that the current system continues to offer to the UK uh, government. So here's a very particular example, uh, and I'm giving you the problem rather than the answer here, Roman, but the, uh, in terms of shielding, um, we had already announced that we think from a public health perspective, our shielded population should continue to take those measures until the middle of August. We have an older, sicker, poorer population. We have a higher percentage of our population in the shielded group. Um, but for those people who would otherwise be in work, the letter from the chief medical officer ask, acts as a sick note that entitles them to statutory sick pay. Uh, when England decides for England uh, that shielding will end at the end of July, so a good two weeks, maybe up to three weeks earlier than we would have done it, uh, I suspect... Uh, that the Welsh sick note will no longer be effective. And uh, that's a perverse outcome. It really shouldn't operate that way, but the current arrangements allow it to happen uh, that way. And Craig's question does, you know, does pinpoint a, a real sort of pinch point in current arrangements. No, that's a really interesting point. And I've got a final one from Stacey. It's coming on Twitter saying, please ask the First Minister about support bubbles and implementing these. This week, so many people are struggling. He hasn't mentioned it at all. So is mental health not a concern right now? It's not the same as meeting family outside uh, the house two metres apart. No, absolutely. Um, now, I had hoped up until about the Wednesday of last week that we would be able to make uh, an announcement about, you know, extended households, joint households, bubbling, whatever you want call it, alongside everything else that I uh, announced on Friday. Uh, but trying to stay true to what I said at the beginning of the conversation, that in Wales we try to do the preparation first and the announcement second, uh, I simply came to the conclusion on Wednesday that we just didn't have you know, the bandwidth 
to do everything we would need to do, the papers we would need to see, the discussions we would have to have, the answers we would need to have ready to be able to come to a conclusion on that question alongside what, as we said earlier, was a bigger package of measures than we might have contemplated a few weeks before. Uh, so we are res- we have resumed that conversation at the start of this week. So I met with the Chief Medical Officer and our Chief Scientist yesterday. Uh, there will be papers coming to ministers maybe uh, later today, maybe tomorrow. We will then do our best to uh, come to conclusions on that. And we don't have to wait for three weeks to announce them. We can make changes at any point in the cycle if we feel it is you know, necessary to do that. And I hope we will be able to determine this, um, you know, in, in shorter order than the three week cycle for all the reasons that you just heard from Stacey. But just to, you know, make a slightly more sobering point around it, while that was our plan on Friday and does remain our plan, uh, today we are dealing with outbreaks in Llangevny in North West Wales, in Wrexham in North East Wales, in Merthyr in South East Wales. Uh, you know, you, you, you can plan and then you can find that events intrude on that. And the people that we would have been relying on to give us the advice we need on the bubbling are the same people who we will be relying on to give us advice in those new challenges as well. So while we will be doing our best to resolve that issue this week, alongside one other issue which we weren't able to resolve in the three-week cycle, which is outdoor hospitality. We've got a rapid review to see if there's anything we can do there. Then um, this crisis is not over. Coronavirus is still here. The health, public health emergency remains with us. And the ability to just do things in a predictable way and forever being asked in press conferences, oh, you must give people certainty, you know. You know, I tend to answer by saying, well, if you can tell me with certainty or what things will be in two weeks' time, let alone two months' uh, time, uh, then you know more than I do. Well, I'm not going to offer to, <laughs> to, to, to give you that, uh, that, that certainty. It, it has been the most extraordinary period of governments having to make big decisions, as you said, affecting every part of people's lives in the middle of enormous uncertainty. And we're going to be watching out on all those questions. So good to hear that, the, uh, that Wales may yet get its bubbles. Um, But with that, we've got to wrap it up. Mark Drakeford, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you very much again for a chance to uh, discuss these matters. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.